0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, now in his second stint as the nation's doctor and a key member of the Biden White House COVID response team. They've unveiled an ambitious plan to prepare for vaccinating the nation's younger children, aged 5 to 11. He talks about the pandemic, threat of coming flu season, in the nation's opioid crisis, which has accelerated during the pandemic. Lori Robertson also checks in the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at Radio at chc1.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the 21st Surgeon General of the United States, the nation's doctor. He's the co-chair of President Biden's White House COVID response team, and he previously served as the 19th U.S. Surgeon General under President Obama.
2: Dr. Murthy is Vice Admiral of the United States Public Health Commission Service Corps commanding 6,000 public health officers around the country and the world. He's the author of Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Dr. Murthy, welcome back to Conversations
1: on Healthcare.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's really nice to see both of you again.
1: And Dr. Murthy, uh, Pfizer just released uh, safety data on vaccines for older teens, that 12 to 18 year old group showing significant uh, protective effect against severe diseases, hospitalizations and death, about 97% efficacy, but there's still a large sector of unvaccinated teens. I-, I was surprised to see this recent Kaiser poll that showed only about 30% of parents of younger children plan to be vaccinate their uh, children right away. Uh, obviously more work, more education to do, uh, as that is such a large gap. But once the vaccines are approved for all school age children, will the White House be in support of state vaccine mandates for children?
3: I'm glad you asked this question, Mark, and I want to put some of these numbers in context because the 30% you mentioned of parents who, according to a recent poll, are ready to go out and get their child vaccinated today under 12, uh, kids under 12, if the vaccine is made available, I want you to think about that in the context of this same poll that was done for adults prior to an adult vaccine being available. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 35% of adults who said that they were ready to go out and get vaccinated once that became available. But what happened in the next few months, number one, the vaccine became available and people had a chance to have their questions answered and they saw family and friends who got vaccinated and who did well. And so that's why today we've got 80% of eligible individuals in America who have either been vaccinated or ready to do so as soon as possible. And so I think with it, when it comes to vaccine for kids under 12, once it comes out, you know, we are going to focus heavily on making sure uh, that not only do people have access to the vaccine through tens of thousands of places, doctors' offices, schools, you know, pharmacies around the country, but also making sure that they have access to accurate information, which is why we're building a national outreach and information initiative.
2: Well, Dr. Murthy, one date that is circled on the calendar is October 26th. Uh, It's the day the FDA Advisory Committee is taking up the issue of the vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-old group. And as you just referenced uh, a moment ago, this is going to be a little bit different and maybe rely much more on the uh, vast network of pediatric practices around the country as well as community health centers uh, and hospitals, and I think you've promised smaller needles and shorter lines. That'll sound good both to the kids and to the parents. <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering, how will this effort be different? I, I think this is new, uh, really engaging the pediatric practices around the country, and I think some shied away from the complications of storage and ordering and reporting. What have you done to make it easier for this very widespread distribution and in places that parents are used to taking their kids for vaccines?
3: Yeah, well, Margaret, the current plan that the White House has been working on to roll vaccines out to kids, uh, if and when the CDC and FDA uh, recommend that, this has been under development for a while, but it builds on the learnings that we have from the last year, where we've been distributing vaccine to adults and to adolescents through a variety of channels, from large-scale events uh, to mobile units to doctor's offices and and pharmacies. And one of the things that we know from, uh, from parents and their feedback is that they would like to ideally get vaccinated in places that they're familiar with. They want to have conversations with people they trust. And it's why we're not only doubling and tripling down on our efforts with doctors' offices to make sure family docs and pediatricians can have vaccine in their office, but we're also making sure that when it comes to to people actually getting uh, information, they can get it from sources they trust, like their school teachers, their school administrators, and their healthcare providers. We've also been working with schools to set up Uh, on-site vaccine delivery options so that ideally a parent could go to school to get vaccinated, go to their doctor's office, go to a pharmacy, go to the local children's hospital. Uh, And the partnerships we're setting up are also ready to work with other community organizations like faith organizations to set up vaccination clinics. So the the motto here is to leave no stone unturned, Mm -hmm. to provide options for people, to help them understand that we've got enough supply for all 28 million children who, have, who fall into the 5 to 11 range and will stand ready to get those vaccines to kids uh, and to their parents.
1: Well, that's really great. And I know, uh, Dr. Murthy, we run uh, around 200 school-based health centers, and uh, I think that will be such a great value for parents. But there was some good news. The FDA just uh, has given approval for the Moderna and the J&J booster shot with a uh, sort of an interesting twist. Based on the study by NIH, recipients can mix and match uh, their booster vaccines. And This move offers consumers, I think, a lot of flexibility, in particular in the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a much higher protective effect when mixed with a mRNA booster such as Moderna or Pfizer. The CDC still has to approve this latest decision, but maybe help the public understand what all of this means.
3: There are four steps uh, to this process. The FDA's advisory committee meets and second, the FDA makes a, a decision. Third, the uh, CDC's advisory committee meets. And then fourth and finally, the CDC will make its recommendation. And then that's how we move forward. Uh, we're more than halfway through that process. We're on step three where the CDC's advisory committee is meeting. When the FDA rendered its decision, it did provide authorization uh, for boosters for Moderna and Johnson Johnson recipients who fall into a high-risk category. So that means people above 65, people with other illnesses like heart disease and diabetes to put them at higher risk. And people who live or work in places where they're at higher risk of exposure to COVID-19. Healthcare workers, grocery store workers and others. But the mix and match is also interesting because what they also authorized was for an individual who gets one of the three vaccines to potentially get boosted with one of the other two vaccines. Now, why is that important? Well, it does give people more flexibility. And we know that some individuals have Wanted the choice uh, to potentially get a separate one. We also know that logistically, uh, if someone is in a circumstance where they can get one vaccine and not another, we want them to to be able to get vaccinated as opposed to foregoing a chance to to get the protection uh, that a booster uh, would provide. So the CDC again is going to weigh in on this. So over the next couple of days, uh, but that is what the, the the mix and match was about, and that the data for that came from an NIH study to look specifically uh, at the mix and match and at the uh, and again, look around issues of safety, look at efficacy, and that's what the FDA will find out.
2: Well, Dr. Murthy, uh, it's always on our mind that this uh, COVID pandemic has already made the lives of 720,000 Americans, and we're glad to see the numbers are again uh, slowly coming down. Uh, but we're heading into winter with colder temperatures, the holidays. You have uh, such a powerful voice as the nation's doctor what are you saying to people this fall about how we prepare for this next phase of the pandemic which we know could involve a twin of both influenza uh, and covid and i know people are going to be asking you know this year what can i do how do i celebrate
3: well it's it's a great question margaret and you know we are coming into colder season we know respiratory viruses do tend to spread Uh, during cold weather season Uh, but there's something we had this winter that we didn't have uh, last winter and that is millions and millions of people who are vaccinated it's a big deal Uh, you know in january mid to late january we had about two million people in the country who are fully vaccinated now we have 190 million people uh, who are fully vaccinated tens of millions of more who've gotten one shot and are on their way to getting fully vaccinated and we're on the the verge of having a decision around vaccines for kids under 12 which will mean potentially another 28 million people uh, will become eligible for vaccine so that is a big deal it's a big uh, reason why i think we will be better off uh, than we were last winter but here are some things for people to keep in mind number one there are still 65 million people in our country who are not vaccinated we need to make sure that they get protection as well so talk to your family and friends remind them that especially after everything we saw with delta it is not too late and more urgent than ever to get vaccinated number two remember what we learned from COVID but what helps to reduce spread is still important for COVID and for flu. We know that wearing masks in indoor spaces help. We know that good hygiene is important. We know that ventilation is really essential, which is why the billions of dollars made available to schools to improve ventilation was so important. And finally, remember this, we've got a flu vaccine too. It's really important that people take that as well. You can get it at the same time. So let that not be a barrier to stopping people from getting protected against both COVID and the flu.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the 21st Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Murthy, the other pandemics that are rolling across the country are addiction and mental health problems and the epidemic of loneliness, which have been really core to the issues for you as Surgeon General and was central to your theme in your uh, very powerful book together. You know, these issues have have reached a really critical mass during the pandemic. And we've seen over 100,000 overdose deaths just in the past year. And recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics just issued a sobering report that the mental health crisis among our young children has reached this critical tipping point. There has to be a better strategy for tackling these issues. I know you have plans. and Can you share with our listeners some of your thoughts about how we might address these very difficult, very important issues?
3: Mark, I'm so glad you brought this up because these are the issues that don't get nearly as much airtime as they deserve, but they are the silent pandemics, if you will, uh, that are costing us in terms of lives, in terms of well-being, uh, of both adults and children in our country. We were struggling with mental health and substance use disorders long before COVID-19 came, but it has really dealt a significant blow uh, to many of those efforts because uh, you know, this has been an incredibly stressful time. People have been taken away from people and social connections, which is one of the, the forces that we lean on to help us uh, during difficult times. People's care uh, has been disrupted, whether it's their medication-assisted treatment or whether it's the counseling services that they they need uh, during the pandemic. And so, putting this all together, what you find is um, we've had an increase in overdoses and overdose deaths and why we're also seeing increased rates of anxiety and depression. But I do think that the pandemic both creates an opportunity as well as urgency for us to act. And we can do that thinking about a few things. One is there still remains an urgent imperative to expand our treatment efforts. Uh, for substance use disorders and for mental health, and to integrate them with primary care, which is something that historically we have done very poorly as a country, got a very fragmented system. The second thing that it emphasizes to us is that we've got to invest in prevention. We actually have programs that we know, if instituted in schools, can be remarkably effective at reducing substance use disorders and mental health concerns down the line. And they're also remarkably cost-effective. When I issued the 2016 Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health, we actually detailed. Many of these preventive programs, but they were not really invested in in the years that followed in the way that our country really needs. But finally, let's just keep this in mind: there's a cultural challenge that we have to solve here, which is that for far too long we have looked at mental illness. We've looked at it as something to be ashamed of, and the result of that, people have not come forward and admitted not just to others, but sometimes even to themselves that they're struggling, uh, and they've gone without help. And sadly, that's ended up uh, far too often in people losing their lives and their uh, and their families have, you know, obviously suffered in the process. We we can't afford to walk down that path anymore. We need to shift culturally in how we look at substance use disorders and mental, mental illness across the board. But finally, Mark and Margaret, we've got to realize that this is about more than preventing mental illness. It's also about recognizing that we have a lot we can do to enhance emotional well-being it's sort of the difference between thinking about like one half of the scale which is about mental illness but realizing if you're free for illness it doesn't mean you're functioning at the top of your game Um, so we need to be thinking about how to invest in emotional well-being it's one of the reasons my office is actually working on an initiative around mental health for the country because we've realized that look this is an opportunity for us to really uh, double down on our commitment and on our actions that we're taking to address mental health, but to really spur what I think is a deeper cultural shift that needs to take place mm-hmm. that impacts not just policy, but how schools and workplaces design their curricula uh, and their work environments mm-hmm. to ultimately promote well-being, support mental health and create the healthy, healthy community that we need all across America.
2: Well, Dr. Murthy, I wonder uh, if I can ask you to comment on another group uh, that is really in distress. Um, and that is a lot of the nation's frontline healthcare workers. Uh, certainly, the COVID pandemic pushed people uh, to their limits. Maybe 4,000 healthcare workers actually lost their lives to COVID during the pandemic. But there's certainly evidence of some widespread clinician burnout. And I wonder if uh, your office and you um, are putting some particular thought or focus into how we address this and both address the burnout that may exist today, but also. Build resilience for the future. We, we, we're not going to have a great, healthy country without a great healthcare workforce. And this issue of building resilience and preventing burnout seems to really require our attention and focus as well.
3: Well, you know, I really appreciate you bringing up clinicians and their well being. The doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, and others who have been on the front lines during this pandemic, they've been really hit hard. And I should also mention that the public health workers in our departments of public health all across the country yeah. have also been hit hard. You know, they've put their lives at risk. They've worked extraordinary hours. They've um, done so in the face of just incredible demands and uncertainty. And far too often, especially for our public health workers, they've been met actually with attacks, with political attacks, with with other abuses, which are, are really terrible because we should be thanking them, not, not attacking them. Right. But with our clinicians in particular, look, this has been a problem that's been growing for years in our country. We have an incredibly high rate of burnout among nurses and doctors. We have an extraordinarily high rate of depression and suicide. And it's not just because we need to equip uh, individuals with better practices for self-care, but the deeper, and I think even bigger, part of the problem is systemic and cultural. We have a system set up in healthcare Uh, that is not really designed to provide doctors and patients the kind of time that they actually need with each other. We sort of overwhelm clinicians with uh, paperwork and other administrative burdens at a time when their patients are asking, why don't I have more time with my doctor? And so we've taken a lot of the meaning out of medicine and, and healthcare. We've also operated in a culture that too often looks at any source of uh, or sign of mental illness or struggle as a sign of weakness and not being tough enough of not being able to cut it and get it done, and which is utterly counterproductive. So if we really want to build a future where clinicians are taken care of, where we care for the people who have been caring for us, then we will need to engage institutions, healthcare institutions, and uh, healthcare educational institutions as well in the work of changing culture and changing practice there are also important roles that payers uh, have here as well, because we know that so much of the administrative burden uh, that clinicians are under comes from payers as well. I'm talking about both private payers and public payers. So we've got to do better. My office is working on, a, on this issue. We are actually looking to put together a blueprint for the country on clinician well being that will lay out a pathway for what government, individual clinicians, healthcare institutions, payers can all do to help create the future. That our healthcare workers need, and frankly, that all of us uh, as patients uh, require.
1: Well, I think that prescription for healthcare workers uh, will be very welcomed, and we look forward to it. Dr. Murthy, well, while the president has not issued a nationwide uh, vaccine mandate, he, he did issue a mandate for federal workers and federal contractors, as, as well as businesses with 100 employees or more. I've noticed recently that uh, around the world and in particular, Italy has just issued a ruling that all people must be vaccinated before returning to work. And we've seen such positive results with uh, mandates that have been put in place. What's the likelihood we might see a similar measure here in the United States?
3: Well, it's a good question. You know, the president's goal from from the beginning, as he stated publicly, uh, you know, and to many of us privately, is to ultimately make sure we get through this pandemic and protect people from the scourge of COVID-19. The vaccine really is the best way to do that. And it's not just about protecting people's health. It's also about getting back to our way of life, making sure our kids can stay in school and making sure that the economy can actually function, making sure that we have the peace of mind of knowing that we can see our family and friends and get together without worrying we're going to get sick. When you look at other examples in our history of when we've had an illness uh, and then fortunately been able to develop a vaccine, the way we got to very high vaccination rates from measles, mumps, rubella, polio, is actually through vaccine requirements. Uh, In fact, nearly all of our schools in America require children to get a vaccine before they enroll. That's why we have 90 plus percent vaccination rates for those illnesses that I just mentioned. So vaccine requirements are not new and they also are very effective. Uh, It turns out just even with COVID-19, like workplaces and institutions that put in requirements for the COVID-19 vaccines saw an average of 20% jump in vaccination rates, many of them you know, pushing them to soar into the 90s of folks who were compliant with the vaccine requirements. So the federal government, you know, as the president has said, will use every lever it has to advance the vaccination effort because that is central to public health. That's what science and public health are telling us. Um, but they will do so in a way that's respectful of, of the law where the president announced is absolutely within the jurisdiction of the federal government to require federal workers for example to get vaccinated uh, to use its authority with cms and its authority with osha to also ensure that our hospitals and our workplaces are, are safe as well so you're going to see more and more data i think that comes out about how these vaccine requirements are in fact really turbocharging and ju- jumpstarting our vaccination rates uh, to very high levels and what that will translate to it's just more protection across the country and finally just consider this if you're a worker out there who's been remote and you're thinking about coming back to the workplace generally you want to know that the workplace is safe you know if you're a child or a parent of a child who's coming back to school you can want to know that your your school is going to be as safe as possible uh, we all want to come back to to shop to work to study in places that we know are going to be safe this is why the requirements make sense it's why so many localities and states are considering them as well
2: We've been speaking today with U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, Vice Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Commission Service Corps. He's the author of Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Learn more about his vitally important work at SurgeonGeneral.gov or follow him on Twitter at Surgeon General or at Vivek underscore Murthy. Surgeon General Murthy, we want to thank you for your dedication to improving the health and the well-being of our entire nation and for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Margaret, thank you so much. And Mark, I appreciate it. Can I share one last thought You know, that's been sure. on my mind here? Yeah. You know, somebody asked me recently, and they said, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? Uh, with all of these efforts on, on COVID and thinking about it what, what came out in this COVID effort for you know, as long as I have, you know, I realized that the thing that concerns me most is the division and polarization that we have uh, in society right now because it stands in the way of us getting people the information they need, making sure people get access to life-saving treatments and vaccines and that's really a tragedy but to me it points out something that COVID taught us which is that importance of our connection with one another, our relationships with one another. When we were separated from people We couldn't see neighbors and friends and and family members. It reminded us that we truly do need each other. We're better off uh, when we have each other. When people were struggling in the course of the pandemic, folks lost jobs and others were trying to figure out how to care uh, for their children at home while also teleworking. So many people stepped up to help one another. That is actually who we are at our best. When we look out for one another, recognizing we are truly stronger, when we're together. But as I see uh, some of the forces out there that are lending themselves to polarization, some of the misinformation that's driving people to turn against one another, it worries me because it means that the most important thing we need, which is to stick by one another, uh, is something that's under threat during one of the worst pandemics uh, that any of us has seen. I raise that just because I think it is up to all of us in whatever role we play, whether we're in government or not, that's incumbent upon all of us to think about what we can do to strengthen our connections, to ensure that we have environments where people can actually speak and dialogue honestly, but respectfully, recognizing we have a common mission here, which is to get through this pandemic. Our enemy is the virus, it is not each other. And we have to make sure that the way we engage in dialogue with each other, the way we approach our decision-making reflects that reality that we truly do need each other during this pandemic and we will long after it's over.
1: What what an important message. Thank you for sharing. Thank that you so is, much. Uh, again, for all of your leadership.
3: Thank you both right. so much.
1: Infectious
4: disease experts say low vaccination rates, resistance to protective measures such as wearing a mask, and the highly transmissible Delta variant are driving the recent surge of COVID-19 cases in the United States. But many Americans apparently believe immigrants are driving the rise in cases. A recent survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 55 percent of Republicans say Immigrants and tourists bringing COVID-19 into the U.S. is a major reason for the high number of cases. There was a surge of new COVID-19 cases that began in mid to late summer. The number of new cases per day jumped from about 12,000 in mid-June to about 160,000 in late August and early September, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's COVID Data Tracker. Simultaneously, there has been a surge of illegal immigration at the southwest border, with apprehensions of illegal border crossers jumping from about 75,000 in January to more than 200,000 in July. But experts say the latter is not driving the former. According to the CDC, virtually all of the new cases emerging in the U.S. are caused by the Delta variant. Emma Hodcroft, a researcher at the University of Bern in Switzerland and a co-developer of a virus tracking site, told us she hasn't seen evidence that Delta arrived from Mexico or South America. In fact, the dominant variants south of the U.S. have been different from Delta, and those variants haven't been dominant in the U.S. Instead, Hodcroft said, Delta was, quote, very likely introduced from the U.K. and India initially, and then the world soon after. Dr. Michelle Heisler, medical director at Physicians for Human Rights, agreed. She told us there was no epidemiological evidence that immigrants at the southwest border were driving a surge in cases. Instead, the hot spots of infection in the U.S. are locations that have very low rates of vaccination, she said. In early August, the city of McAllen, Texas, said Catholic Charities and American Medical Response identified more than 7,000 COVID-19 positive immigrants brought to the city since mid-February. Officials for the county that includes McAllen have said that while the surge of immigration has become a crisis, it's incorrect to blame immigrants for rising COVID-19 cases in the county. And that's my fact check for this week.
1: conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Asthma is one of the leading causes of trips to the emergency room for children, and there are often a correlation between high-density, low-income neighborhoods and more trips to the hospital for treatment and intervention. When officials at Boston Children's Hospital noticed a spike in asthma outbreaks in certain neighborhood clusters, they decided to do something about it. They launched the community asthma initiative. They realized that if you could treat the environments in the patient's home, that might reduce the need to treat the patient in the emergency room.
0: The home visiting efforts work with children and families that have been identified through their hospitalizations and emergency room visits as an identification of having poorly controlled asthma, and also it's a teachable moment.
1: Dr. Elizabeth Wood heads the program and says the first step is to identify the frequent flyers, those kids who make repeated trips to the emergency room. Then they match with the community health worker who visits their home several times and assesses the home for asthma triggers.
0: And they work on three areas, understanding asthma itself, understanding the medications and the need for control medications, and then working on the environmental issues.
1: Families are given everything from HEPA filter vacuum cleaners to air purifiers. They are told not to clean with certain toxic products, and the homes are monitored for the presence of pests or rodents. The result, says Dr. Wood, has been pretty dramatic.
0: What's remarkable is that there was a 56% reduction in patients with any emergency department visits and 80% reduction in patients with any hospitalization.
1: And while this program is expensive, there is a return on investment in reduced hospital costs and healthier children. The program has been so successful, it's being deployed in other hospital communities around the country. The Community Asthma Initiative, a simple reshifting of resources aimed at removing the cause of disease outbreaks in the community, leading to healthier patient populations. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.